Hello and welcome to the second annual Halloween Spooktacular of the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. <laughs> I am Dracula. Oh, it's really good to see you. I don't know what happened to the driver and my luggage and... Well, and with all this, I, I thought I was in the wrong place. I bid you welcome. Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. So last year, folks, we covered my own tales from the land of Lincoln. Well, as I told you then, I've lived the life of a rolling stone, and I've lived in many places over the years. This year, for Halloween, we're going to cover my experiences in another state. The Grape State. The El Dorado State. The land of milk and honey the land of fruits and nuts, the cereal bowl of the nation, the nation's greenhouse, the Eureka State, the Bear Republic, where stars are buried, the Golden State. The name California came from a nightly romance book that was published in 1510. It was about an island paradise near the Indies where a beautiful Queen Khalifa ruled over a country of beautiful black Amazons with lots of pearls and gold. Men were only allowed there one day a year, to help perpetuate the race. Cortez's men thought they found the island in 1535 because they found pearls. Later, Francisco de Ulloa found that the island was really a peninsula, the area we now call Baja or Lower California. While there is some consensus that the area was named for the fictional island, scholars have also suggested that the name comes from the Catalan words calor, which means hot, and forn, which means oven or from a Native American phrase, Californo, or High Hill. Whatever you call it, most people all over the world already have an opinion or preconceived thoughts on the state, be they negative or positive. Most people who haven't been there think of Los Angeles, and with good reason. The greater Los Angeles area has about 18.7 million people living in it. In other words, if the region was its own state, it would be the fifth largest by population. The state has a population of just shy of 40 million people, 10 million more than Texas, which is the second largest. If you get out of the cities of L.A., San Diego, and the Bay Area, the state is home to some of the most beautiful and epic scenes on the planet. Northern California, in particular, is known for Yosemite and the Redwood Forest, among many others. Tonight you will visit both cities and the surprisingly close by and remote countryside, in and around San Diego and Riverside counties. When we do cover the state in depth, it will take many episodes to do properly, but we are going to start with my personal experiences in the state of California. 
Well, good evening, everyone. I hope that you're great. I hope you're enjoying your spooky season, your October season. If you go on Instagram, you can see a video while I'm filming this. I just did a real short video to show that this episode is all by candlelight. So it adds a bit of ambiance here in Tower Studios. It's dark. It's very dark out, as a matter of fact. No moon. So uh, it is the perfect night for me to do this episode for you. Now, there's a few steps to tonight's episode. I'm going to do a very special Halloween-only News of the Damned, which is all Halloween-related content. Then I'm going to do a ghost story that I found on Reddit that I thought was appropriate. Then we're going to get into the main segment, which is my experiences in the time I lived in California, which was pretty close to 10 years. So I do have some pretty interesting experiences for you to hear about. Now, a couple of things that I do want to say. First and foremost, to the boys at the old 77 at the podcast, who have always been so supportive of The Paranormal Sun, congratulations on you making it to episode 77, which I think is an epic achievement. And they're recording it live at a local brewery. And uh, they'll be having people come on down and uh, be on the air. I, I think it's a great idea, and I wish I could be there, guys. I really do. But I'll have, once we get into the main segment of the show, and I get through the news of the dam, then I'll sit down and I'll have a whiskey here in studio as we record this episode. Now, the other thing, my friends, is that we've got a last-minute special Halloween bonus for you. So I've been talking to the chapter president in the great state of North Carolina, and tomorrow we're going to sit down and record another bonus Halloween segment for you. So that's going to be in and around haunted houses and real estate and the like. So I do hope that you'll tune in and check that out. So this year you're actually getting three Halloween episodes for the price of none. So uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely something cool. And uh, thank you so much, Lisa, for reaching out and getting in touch with me so that we could plan that and uh, get it teed up. So we'll definitely be doing that soon. So everyone, I really do hope that you're having a great season so far. Everyone around the world, thanks so much for listening. I'm not going to hold you up too long with this because uh, it is time to get into the news of the dam shortly. But one thing I did want to say Thank you, Trey. Trey caught my hiccup in the last episode, which was part two of the Betty and Barney Hill series. And uh, I was saying Sahwain uh, several times for the Irish holiday, the Gaelic word, and it's actually Samhain, so Samhain. So uh, sorry for that, Trey, um, and anyone else who caught it. Uh, I, it's just something that was never said a lot in the U.S. I knew it wasn't Samhain although there are people that think that's how it's pronounced. But uh, thanks for catching that, Trey. I do appreciate it. And uh, I've got a few of your articles as well to cover over on tonight's News of the Damn Trey. So with that being said, folks, if you want to support the program, the best way to support the program is to tell others and just tell people, hey, check this guy out. He's not too bad. He's got some good content. You can support the program. You can go and like anything on the social media. On Instagram is the best place to find me. You can find links to everything in the show notes of every episode. Or if you go on Instagram and then go into the profile there, the underscore paranormal underscore sun. If you go in the link there, that will take you to a 
Linktree site that'll take you anywhere you want to go. Facebook group, the website, which is theparanormalsun.com. Anywhere you want to go, really. Uh, I'm most active, as I say, on Instagram and in the Facebook group, but most of the time I am on Instagram. And if you ever want to reach out to me, that's probably the best way. You can either send me a messenger on Instagram or Facebook, or you can send an email to theparanormalsun, all one word, at gmail.com. Don't be afraid to reach out. Like I say, uh, I had one ghost story this year for Halloween, but uh, if you want to send me something for next year's Halloween, you can send it through right away, folks, and I will get it on the air next year. So yeah, without further ado, we're going to get into the news of the damned now. So for those of you who don't know what the news of the damned is, there was a gentleman in the early 1900s in the U.S. named Charles Fort. Now, Charles Fort was a big proponent of all of the things that we enjoy. So be they sea monsters or strange lights in the sky and objects, disappearing people, mysteries of life in the universe. Well, Charles Fort gathered 30 or 40,000 notes on index cards over the years. And in fact, if you take his whole career, over 100,000. And he read many periodicals and magazines from around the world, but mainly newspapers. And then he gathered these notes and he wrote a series of books. And as I say, I can never remember the exact number. It's either four or five books, not counting the two that he wrote and are lost books. Well, anyway, Charles Fort referred to anything that was excluded or ignored by science as damned data. Therefore, this news segment that we do here on The Paranormal Sun is forever known as The News of the Damned. So here we are with that all-Halloween lineup of the News of the Damned. Got a couple articles here from Trey and three of my own. So without further ado, we'll just get it kicked off here. So this one is from Atlas Obscura. And uh, this one, and as always, folks, there's links in the show notes. So if you go in the show notes, you can click on the link to the article and check it out. So this one is called The Wonderful World of Selling Your Haunted House. Depending on the ghosts, it might fetch a premium. And this is from Dan Nosowitz, and it's from October the 30th, 2019. So it says, One Levetta Place in the charming hamlet of Nyack, New York, lies on the Hudson River, about an hour north of New York City. It's a beautiful old Victorian, built in 1890. It's sprawling 4,600 square feet, complete with five bedrooms and five bathrooms. The house has previously been owned by Adam Brooks, the director and writer of the 2008 rom-com Definitely Maybe, as well as singer-songwriter Ingrid uh, Mickelson. It's currently owned by Jewish, formerly Hasidic reggae artist Matt Asayahu, who recently put the house on the market for $1.9 million. The real estate listing boasts of river views, an in-ground saltwater spa pool, and a beautiful wraparound porch. It does not mention that the house is haunted and was the subject of one of the funniest and most famous real estate legal cases of the past 50 years. It's taught in law schools as the Ghostbusters rulings. One Lavetta place is just one of dozens of purportedly haunted houses currently for sale. Selling a haunted house is a complex negotiation, a mashup of local laws, local culture, and local lore. 
it isn't even necessarily a bad thing for real estate sales. The Nyack House has in the past sold for significantly more money than comparable houses in the area due to its infamy. Maybe Matisayao loves ghosts, or at least arcane legal history. Real estate law is, with a few exceptions, dependent on state rather than federal statutes. Those exceptions include disclosures for stuff like asbestos and lead paint. States with wildly different requirements for what's called disclosure, or what a buyer has a right to know about a house before they purchase, is complete. About half the states are disclosure states, and half are called caveat emptor, emptor, which is uh, buyer beware, says Randall Bell. Again, me and my Latin. Bell is a real estate appraiser. He assigns dollar values to, uh, to damages to a property. That means that Bell is often called in for petty normal stuff, like figuring out how much a property that has been damaged by a natural disaster is really worth. But he also is perhaps the nation's foremost appraiser, as E.J. Dickinson of Rolling Stone put it, the world's most gruesome murder sites. Bell, who is based in Los Angeles, has worked on the site of the Tate LaBianca murders, and uh, yeah, more on that later, actually, folks, on the Sharon Tate murder, as well as the house where John Benet Ramsey was killed, and where Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman were murdered, among many others. So he has a little experience in moving real estate with a dark history. Bell has also dealt with haunted houses, which of course are not really the same thing as houses where a real, actual murder has taken place. But what's interesting is that in the eyes of the law, these two factors fall under the same umbrella. It's a little bit cold and calculating, but in real estate law, an on-site, prior murder, and a supposed ghost are both issues that do not affect the physical state of the house, but can impact both the home's value and the experience of living there. A disclosure state, Bell explains, requires sellers to provide a fair amount of information on the state of the roof, the foundation, the appliances, whether there's been water or smoke damage, that kind of thing. The precise level of information varies. New York and California are particularly strict, he says, but in general there's a big form the seller has to fill out truthfully. Caveat emptor, Latin for buyer beware, is the opposite. In states employing this guideline, Alabama, Arkansas, North Dakota, West Virginia and Wyoming, for example, there's generally a rule stating that a seller or seller's representative must be truthful if asked direct questions, but that the seller is under no obligation to volunteer information. The number of things you could potentially disclose is in the hundreds, says Bells. Many states use a pretty standard checklist form without any weirdness, but not all. Several states, including Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, and Missouri, require the seller to disclose if the house was ever used to cook methamphetamine, which can leave behind hazardous waste. Yep. In Mississippi, the seller is required to state if there are hardwood floors underneath the carpet or linoleum, and also what kind of internet access the house has, which is pretty generous. Among disclosure states, there's also a term called stigmatized property that refers to things that have or may have happened in the house or on the property that are not material damages. Most commonly, that means crime, murder, suicide, or burglary. The most important legal precedent in the area comes from the 1983 case in California called Reed v. King. Doris Reed purchased a house from Robert King, unaware that a woman and her four children had been murdered there in grisly fashion ten years prior. The big issue here is that King was not only aware of the crime, but he had actually asked neighbors not to reveal anything about it to potential buyers. The disclosure element 
in which a seller is obligated to reveal facts about a property without specifically being asked, is vital here, because no physical home inspection can turn up a murder, and the buyer may not think to ask. That case created the idea of stigmatized properties, something like invisible, and probably intangible, about a property that can affect what it's like to live in or sell that property in the future. This brings us back to the 1991 case involving Mattisaya's house in Nyack. The Nyack case is technically called Stambovsky v. Ackley. Helen Ackley, the owner of the house at the time, was trying to sell the property to one Jeffrey Stambovsky. Stambovsky agreed and made a down payment, only to discover that the house was believed to be haunted. Ackley had, in fact, repeatedly boasted that the house was haunted, including in, uh, including in a Reader's Digest story called Our Haunted House on the Hudson. So yeah, she's not being very uh, demure about it, was she? Ackley claimed to have seen several ghosts, including a Revolutionary War soldier and one that apparently approved her choices of paint color. There were also reports of phantom footsteps, gifts that would later vanish, and a child woken up each morning by a ghost shaking her bed. The interactions were, however, described as peaceful. Stambovsky um, sued Ackley for not disclosing that the house was haunted. After an initial dismissal, New York was a uh, caveat emptor state at the time, the verdict was overturned on appeal, with the court finding that Ackley had deliberately concealed information that could affect the value of the house. The majority opinion of the New York Supreme Court Appellate Division, written by Justice Israel Rubin, is extremely funny and full of puns and wordplay. In the interest of avoiding such untenable consequences, the notion that a haunting is condition which can and should be ascertained upon reasonable inspection of the premises is a hobgoblin which should be exercised from the body of legal precedent and laid quietly to rest. Partly as a result of that ruling, today's real estate sellers are often required to know if a home is generally believed to be haunted. There's no specific question in any of the state disclosure forms I read, but rather a more general question asking if there are any other factors potentially affecting the home's value or the well-being of the home's owner. If asked, I'd say, yeah, if it's got a reputation of being haunted, you should disclose, says Bill. And um, there's a sign here in Georgia that's got a, it's got a, it says you know, for sale classic homes and home sites, but at the top it says not haunted. There are some exceptions. Arizona explicitly does not require the disclosure of murder in the house, even if the seller is asked. The seller cannot lie, but can simply say, I am not legally required to answer that question. This is kind of a giveaway, you can imagine. In California, you must disclose any death in the house within the past three years, but you are legally forbidden to disclose whether a person with HIV or AIDS lived or died in the house, even if asked. It seems likely that living in a house where someone was killed is not much of a draw for the vast majority of potential home buyers, but a haunted house disclosure is not necessarily a deal breaker. For some people, that's what they want, says Bell. Sure, sometimes a haunting can be a turnoff, but it all depends on the market, and well, the ghosts. In the case of the Nyack home, the, the house's famous paranormal and legal status has probably boosted its price. In the past, it sold for significantly more than comparable houses in the area. In 2019, it's listed for substantially more per square foot than other houses in Nyack, though it's also a very nice house that's literally on the Hudson River. And yeah, it is. It's, uh, it is a very nice home. In New Orleans, a city absolutely saturated with ghosts, some real estate brokers add an additional little sign to their for-sale placards. In other cities, this kind of sign might read, 
newly renovated, or price drop. But in New Orleans and a few other places, some say haunted or not haunted. In a city with such a rich history of the supernatural, these haunted houses can sometimes demand a premium. Magnolia Mansion, among the most famous haunted houses in the city, was listed for nearly $5 million in 2016. So maybe Natasayu, Matasayu isn't crazy to ask for a little more for his gently haunted house. After all, there are plenty of million-dollar houses with saltwater spa pools. But how many of them come with poltergeists who can critique your interior design choices? So yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good little tongue-in-cheek article, I thought. And um, yeah, it's an interesting little one. Um, I would say that like the uh, the home, I'm trying to think of the one on Long Island from... Uh, Jeez, I can't like, man, it's terrible. I, you're probably all screaming at me right now. Oh, yeah, I know the house. I know the movie, but I can't for the life of me remember the movie. But it's the one on Long Island, and um, it is a very famous uh, movie. Uh, anyway, hold on. I'll get future John to, to find out for you. And folks, I'm back, and it is the Amityville Horror House. Uh, can't believe I couldn't remember that one off the top of my head, but I guess it just goes to show you get so much stuff crammed in your head, you do forget things from time to time. All right, so that's from Atlas Obscura. The next one was sent to me from Trey, so thanks, Trey. And this one is from Live Science. And this one says, Oldest ghost drawing discovered on Babylonian exorcism tablet. And this is just from a few days ago. And it says, uh, by Patrick Pester. And it says, Do not look behind you. A museum curator has discovered the oldest known ghost drawing on a 3,500-year-old ancient Babylonian tablet that also includes instructions for how to exorcise the unwanted spirit. The drawing on a clay tablet depicts a seemingly grumpy, bearded male ghost being led to the underworld on a rope by a woman. A ritual engraved alongside this sketch explains that the solution for removing pesky male ghosts is to give them a lover. While examining ghost-related tablets in the vaults of the British Museum in London, Irving Finkel, a senior curator in the museum's Middle East department, discovered the drawing and translated the accompanying ritual, the Guardian first reported. This ritual would be enacted, I think, in the case of a persistent domestic, probably family ghost, who was getting really beyond a joke, and lots of people were being startled and didn't want it to go on any longer, Finkel told Live Science. The British Museum acquired the tablet in the 19th century, along with thousands of other tablets from Babylon, an ancient city about 60 miles, or 100 kilometers, south of Baghdad in modern-day Iraq. The tablets provide insight into what life was like in Babylon and the wider region, called Mesopotamia. The tablet is small enough to fit in one hand, and at least half of it is missing. Finkel knew that the tablet's cuneiform text, an ancient writing system from the Middle East, described a ghost ritual, but he didn't examine the tablet properly until he started conducting research for his new book, The First Ghosts, which is being released on November the 11th. Upon closer inspection, Finkel found the fine drawing, which is barely visible to the naked eye, and he identified the ghost and woman. These characters suddenly walked out of a myth, Finkel said. It was very exciting. The image serves as a visual, visual aid to the ritual, which would have been performed by an exorcist. The ritual instructs the reader to make figurines of a man and woman and equip them with specific items, including travel provisions for the man and furniture for the woman. The figurines are then to be buried together at sunrise while the exorcist recites a spell. The spell on the tablet is incomplete, 
but it begins by calling the sun god Shamash, who was responsible for the movement of ghosts to the underworld. This was not a symbolic ritual, but a literal one, Finkel says. The exorcist was meant to transfer the ghost into a figurine so he could pass over with Shamash's blessing. The last line of the ritual warns, Do not look behind you. Finkel believes this warning was meant for the figurines as they entered the underworld, but he can't be sure. Perhaps the message was meant for the exorcist as they left the figurines. The tablet likely came from an exorcist library or a temple. A master craftsperson likely created the rare drawing, Finkel said, as clay is an unforgiving medium to draw on and requires tremendous skill. Finkel hopes his new book will shine a light on Mesopotamia in ghost history and highlight how accessible the ancient Mesopotamian culture is today. The people who come out of these pages don't look like museum constructions. They don't look like weirdos from another planet. They look like people that we would recognize, Finkel says. According to Finkel, people today would recognize their fears, suspicions, and rituals. All those sorts of things add up to a picture which is very familiar, in the sense of the humanity under it is the same humanity as today. So yeah, really good one there. Uh, Trey, thanks for sending that through. And again, it just goes to show, I mean, we've heard these stories that ghosts are as old as mankind in our traditions, and there is the oldest written description of one going back uh, 3,500 years, and I'm sure it was a tradition before that, just not written down. Right, so next one here is from Curbed. So that's curbed.com. And it says, Buying the Nightmare on Elm Street. Haunted houses present a very real challenge for realtors. By Jeff Andrews. And this is from October the 25th of 2018. Realtor Dana Bull was doing a final inspection on a two-family property in Salem, Massachusetts, on behalf of a buyer who wanted to live in one unit and rent out the other. The second unit already had tenants in it, and the buyer needed to decide, needed to decide whether to let them stay or try to find new ones. As Bull and the inspector surveyed the rental unit, which she says was filthy and littered with satanic decor, Bull stumbled upon a door hidden behind, behind a drape, a door she hadn't noticed during her previous looks at the property. Behind it, she found a curiously clean room with strange objects she didn't recognize. The inspector did, though, and clued her in. It was a room where we guessed they were, sacrificing animals as part of a religious practice, Bull says. Needless to say, my buyers didn't pursue the property. While Bull encounters her fair share of odd situations in Salem, which attracts colorful characters because of its history as home of the infamous Salem witch trials, in the late 17th century, her experience with homes that were associated with the occult highlights an issue realtors face across the country. Haunted houses are considered stigmatized, an official designation that, though it means there's no material defect with the house, still elicits an emotional response, usually the heebie-jeebies. Murders, suicides, drug manufacturing, general criminal activity, devil worshipping, extreme hoarding, and other unseemly practices, occurrences, and presences tend to scare off buyers who would otherwise be interested in a house, presenting realtors with the challenge of getting market value for what is otherwise a perfectly fine structure. A survey from Realtor.com revealed this to be true. A full 49% of prospective home buyers said they would not consider a haunted house under any circumstances, regardless of price cuts or added perks. But 18% of respondents said the perception of a house being haunted wouldn't factor into their decision-making, nor would they need a concession in order to buy. The rest said they'd need some type of perk, 
a lower price, a larger kitchen, or a better neighborhood. If a house has a material defect, such as a structural issue or a leaky roof, sellers are required to disclose this to potential buyers if they're aware of it. But for stigmas, the law gets murky and varies from state to state. And then they talk about the Strambovsky and versus Ackley case, so I won't go over that again. It says, according to Realtor.com, it's understood now that in New York, if a seller has claimed to the public at large that a house is haunted, it is required to disclose this to the buyer. But if this is just a private belief of the seller, it is not required to be disclosed. Be careful who you brag to about your house being haunted. For other stigmas such as deaths in the house, the law tends to be more codified. Although the website diedinhouse.com is a resource that can help buyers find out for themselves. In Massachusetts, the law is relatively lax. Legally, Bull says, sellers don't have to disclose stigmas unless the prospective buyer asks, but many do as a matter of ethics. California realtor Cindy Hagley advocates for over-disclosing, though in California the rules around deaths are more strict. Sellers are required to disclose to buyers if there's been a death in the house in the last three years, but the Golden State is one of a few exceptions, not the norm. While Hagley is only licensed in California, she serves as a consultant on tricky disclosure cases all over the country and specializes on houses perceived to be haunted. But unlike most realtors, Hagley is a true believer in the paranormal, having experienced what she describes as multiple supernatural occurrences firsthand. As a child, Hagley says, she she was awoken in the middle of the night by a voice that screamed, you can't get in here right now. She went to the bathroom to find the tub filled four inches high with individually lit matches. It was one of many startling occurrences in her family's Rome, Ohio home. My dad said, which one of you kids did this, Hagley recalled. We were like, well, none of us did it. It would have taken ten people days to light enough matches to get four inches deep in that bathtub. In her consulting work, Hagley first visits the home in question to determine if there is a paranormal presence. Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't, she says. If there is, she then helps the sellers make a decision about whether or not to disclose to buyers, she says. She usually waits until she has a few offers before recommending the seller alert the buyer. In a recent case in Colorado, Hagley says she visited a house where multiple deaths had occurred over several decades, and the occupants had witnessed shapes appearing on the stairs, the piano downstairs randomly playing itself, and radios turned, uh, so that's tuned, they've got a misspelling, radios tuned without anyone present to do so. It truly sounded like there were other occupants actively living in that home, Hagley says of the house, which ended up selling despite the concerns. I thought there might be some sort of demonic presence around it. Demonology scares me. I had to physically step away after that. But for those who aren't true believers in the occult, a haunted house won't deter a home purchase at all. And in a few rare cases, rumors of spirits can actually be a selling point, particularly if there's a well-known story around the house. That was the case with with a Victorian home that overlooks Polly Judd Park in Spokane, Washington. Okay, this is news to me. And that is in my uh, childhood area where I grew up. Not in Spokane, but fairly close. Polly Judd and her husband Thomas owned the home. And after World War II, Polly took in former soldiers who needed shelter as they transitioned back to civilian life. In the 1960s and 70s, the house was a rental and continued to attract colorful characters. 
but it also attracted troubled souls, as multiple suicides and deaths occurred in the house over the years. Bad fortune seemed to befall all of the house's subsequent owners, and there are no shortage of creepy stories about it from those in the neighborhood, says Spokane realtor Marianne Bornhoft, who has sold the house in the past. Bornhoff says that after having a photographer shoot the house for a real estate list listing, she noticed in the pictures that a chandelier was casting a shadow on the wall in the shape of three upside-down crosses. During an open home, Bornhoff said a prospective buyer claimed something or someone shoved, him, shoved her into a room in the basement, where she was trapped for hours. Bornhoff says that on one particularly creepy afternoon, the same chandelier from the photograph randomly began to sway. That house, more than any other house I've sold, had such a weird, very odd things happen in it, Bornhoff said. It was very paranormal. I'm a Christian. I don't believe in things like this, but I can't explain what happened in that house. I'm not the only one. Repeated people, repeatedly, people have had such odd experiences. But Bornhoff says that the current owner, George Gordon, loves the history of the house. In a recent story about the house in the local Spokesman Review, Gordon says he doesn't think the house is haunted though his son seems to have different ideas. I was really worried about going to be that it was going to be detrimental to selling the house, says Bornhoft, but in the end, the house was so iconic that I think that's what attracted people to it. So yeah, that's another interesting one, folks. And yeah, like I say, uh, I have heard other stories like this where a home, especially if it's got someone, a ghost of someone that says famous attached to it, yeah, it can up the value definitely, and it definitely won't be a detriment. So, yeah, quite an interesting one there. So I've got another one here, and this one is from National Geographic. So nationalgeographic.com. And this one says, These brave souls live in haunted houses, and they love it. A writer crossed the country looking for folks who consider ghosts to be part of the family. Surprising, they weren't hard to find. And this is from Bill Newcott, and this was literally published today. If they love a house enough, home buyers are willing to overlook just about anything. Garish colors? We'll paint over them. Tiny kitchen? We'll blow out that back wall. Ghosts? Well, why not? In fact, a 2018 Realtor.com poll revealed that one-third of prospective buyers wouldn't think twice about buying a haunted house if the price, location, and amenities were appealing enough. And 18% said in effect, hey, a ghost is all the amenity we need. We'll take it. While lawyers refer to haunted houses as psychologically impacted or stigmatized properties, a surprising number of people who call them home, sorry, a surprising number of people just call them home. I crossed the country looking for folks who consider ghosts to be part of the family. Surprisingly, they weren't hard to find. Understand I've never believed in ghosts, and I'm pretty sure I still don't. But how then do I explain the weird event that's been haunting me for a couple of months now? I was enjoying dinner with my wife Carolyn and her old friend Mary at a charming, century-old Victorian home-turned-restaurant in historic Lewes, Delaware. The three of us were seated at a table with four chairs. Just as we began digging into our entrees, and you've just got to go with me here, the bottle of wine that we'd ordered started to slide, like a piece of a chessboard, across the table toward the empty chair. As we watched in silence, our forks hovering halfway between our plates and our mouths, the bottle continued off the edge, but instead of falling, it rose over the tall back of the vacant chair, then descended gently to the floor and landed with a dull thud rather than a crash. There we sat, forks still frozen, 
mouths hanging open, our eyes darting back and forth, and I don't blame them. We were still in that stunned state when our server rushed from across the room. As she replaced the bottle on the table, she murmured, almost to herself, it's the ghost. It turns out someone or something has been pulling otherworldly pranks like this for years at the establishment. It took some time, but the owner and staff eventually came to terms with sharing the property with an unseen entity. That seemed odd to me, but as I set out in search of haunted homes, I was surprised by how many people share that attitude. A sprinkle is falling from a blanket of low-hanging clouds, and thunder is rolling in the distance. The atmosphere seems perfect as I stand along historic Bathhouse Row in Hot Springs, Arkansas, waiting for John Cooksey to show me his haunted house. The human history of Hot Springs reaches back three millennia. Behind the house, behind the bathhouses rises Hot Springs Mountain, where 142-degree waters have attracted visitors ranging from the earliest Native Americans to 1930s gangsters. Ghost stories abound regarding the town's old hotels, violent speakeasies, and shady brothels. Cooksey pulls up in his car, which is comfortably cluttered with tools of his multiple trades, including videographer, local broadcaster, and real estate agent. Actually, I've got two haunted houses, he tells me jauntily as we head away from downtown and into the surrounding hills. My wife and I live in one, and we rent out the other, right next door. It doesn't take long to get there. These are no Adams Family-style Victorian manses, nor do they have spooky, eye-like windows, a la the Amityville Horror House. They're just a couple of low-rise brick homes with, str with struggling lawns and trash cans out front. This is Bill, Cooksey tells his wife. Annie, as we enter the couple's kitchen through a side door, he's here about the ghost. Annie nods as if she's been told there's a man here about the plumbing. Did you tell him about the smoke, she asks? That was interesting. On the ride here, I've already heard about the mysterious late-night footsteps and the occasional glowing eyes that appear in the dark, but not the smoke. Cooksey steps through an arch doorway into what is now the laundry room. One night we smelled something like cigar smoke, he tells me. We followed it around the house and finally discovered it was coming from in here. As we came into the room, the smell just vanished. Didn't dissipate like you'd expect. It was just gone. Cooksey calls the un his unseen boarders friendly ghosts. We like them, he says. Every once in a while, they just do something to remind us they're still here. Of course, it's one thing to happily cohabitate with something otherworldly and quite another to rent a haunted house to someone else. We head next door to a residence which, much like the Cooksey's place, the couple rents this house on a short-term basis, usually to tourists. Pausing on the porch, Cooksey confesses that he doesn't tell prospective renters about the mysterious moving items, the odd noises, and the flickering lights. They usually come over and tell me about them, he says. We had a blind woman stay here once. One morning out of nowhere, she said to me, tell me about the spirits in this house. I can sense they're here. We enter. Directly inside the front door, a dark wooden staircase winds to an upstairs room. We creak our way to the claustrophobic second floor, where there are a few beds and a window at the far end. I'm going to go back downstairs, Cooksey tells me abruptly. Why don't you hang here for a few minutes? Come down when you're ready. And then he's gone. I stand there in silence, trying to discern if the uneasiness I feel is, belt is born of an unseen presence or simply the creep-inducing power of suggestion. Either way, I decide I'm ready. I flee down the shadowy stairs and back to the gray outdoors. 
It's certainly unusual, but oddly enough, not unexpected. When Leslie Grunwald's kitchen faucet suddenly, and without apparent reason, starts running at full blast. That's just Greg washing his hands again, she says. Greg was an old friend of Grunwald and her husband, Doug, and so often happens in ghost stories, Greg met a sad and sudden end. At age 60, the lifelong physicist decided to retire, but two months before the big day, he died suddenly. The end came in a bedroom of, the, of this very house in Livermore, California. And Lawrence Livermore Labs is in California, in, in Livermore. Uh, so, yeah, that ties in the physicist. Grunewald bought the place from Greg's estate in 2016. But although she and her husband completely renovated the house, Greg has never left, she says. I don't think he was ready to go. He seems to be holding on. On her smartphone, Grunewald scrolls for a minute before she finds the video she's looking for. It's a shot of her kitchen sink, taken from across the room. Water is rushing from the faucet. Then it just stops. The unforced eeriness of the clip makes me gasp. I never know when the water's going to start running, so I can never get the beginning part, Grunewald says. She also has videos of lights flickering mysteriously, but it's the running water that has convinced her Greg is still around. He suffered from OCD, she says. He was constantly washing his hands. It's almost as if he just decided to walk across the kitchen and wash them again, like he always did when he was alive. Even when she was buying the house, Grunwald sensed Greg was still in residence. I could feel his presence, sort of an essence, she says, but that made me just want to buy the house even more. I'm glad he's still here. It makes me feel privileged to think he wants to share his home. I don't want him to leave. The purchase of Greg's house was handled by Cindy Hagley, a real estate agent in nearby Pleasanton. Of the 100 or so houses Hagley sells each year, she says, two or three will have spirit entities inside. The very first house I sold was haunted, says Hagley, who's been a local agent for about 15 years. It was a little crazy. The sellers told me about strange things happening in the house. I didn't know what to do. She consulted a veteran agent at the office. He told me that so long as the spiritual presence was not public knowledge, there was no need to tell anyone, she recalls. But if people in the neighborhood knew about it, then it could be then it could affect the value of the property and should be disclosed. The owner said they'd never told anyone, so I felt home free. But then, at my first open house, a neighbor came in and said, Finally, I get to see the inside of the haunted house. Now, Hagley says, she discloses the presence of a home spirit squatters of now Hagley says she discloses the presence of a home's spirit squatters to buyers, but not until they're ready to sign on the dotted line to purchase the place. By that time, they've been through a bidding process, and, they've all, and they're already emotionally invested, she says. They're not going to walk away because of a spirit. That Realtor.com poll bears her out. 54% of people who think their house is haunted say they knew that before they bought it. For proof, look no further than the 19th century house in Rhode Island, that inspired the 2013 movie, The Conjuring. It recently went on the market for $1.2 million. It may be surprising to learn that, in many states, there are laws regarding how, mu how much sellers must reveal about a haunted house. In most states, the seller can remain mum, unless the buyer specifically asks about spirits. Alaska and California require sellers to disclose if anyone has died on the property in the last three years. Then they talk about the Ackley case again. I leave Cindy Hagley's office in Pleasanton, turn east onto US-50, and head about 130 miles to the old California mining town of Placerville. 
The town used to be called Hangtown, in light of its gold rush reputation as the place where claim jumpers were regularly executed. Above the Hangman's Tree Saloon on Main Street, a blue jean dummy dangles at the end of a short rope. I'll be spending the night here, in a haunted bed and breakfast. Please don't say the place is haunted, corrects Robin Rowers, owner of this season's bed and breakfast. I prefer to say this house is occupied by spirits, and it's always been a very positive force. Rowers has had several incarnations herself. In the 1970s and 80s, she was known as Robin Douglas, co-star of numerous films, including the cult bicycling classic Breaking Away, and a regular on the original Battlestar Galactica TV series. She quit acting to pursue her passion for animal welfare in Hollywood, and now here she is handing me the keys to my room at this 160-year-old brick house on a wooded hillside above Placerville. I never tell my guests about the spirits, Rowers said. They tell me. They hear voices. They ask why the lights keep going on and off. The fan goes on by itself. I had an electrician come in and check things out, and he found nothing, so now I just sit there and smile. The seasons made local news a few years back when a team of paranormal investigators swarmed over the place with spirit-detecting equipment. Their verdict? Yep, haunted. The former owners told me we've got the spirits of three sisters who lived here, Martha, Margaret, and Catherine, and there's a man named Buck who used to sit outside the basement door skinning animals. Of course, guests are not always happy to share their quarters. One couple insisted they awoke one night to see the outline of a figure hovering at the foot of their bed, watching them. They were terrified, Rowers recalls. They didn't even stay for breakfast. They just left. And good luck getting utility service if the company gets wind of, of a ghost. A fellow who came to read the meter ran away and refused to come back, she says. He said he was at the side of the house when something went through me. So kind, some kind of entity entered him from the front and exited out the back. I told him, oh, that's just Buck. Alas, no ghostly visitors dropped in during my night at the seasons. Not Buck, nor the sisters. No voices, not even a flickering light. Scientific literature is rife with explanations for supernatural activity, including electromagnetic fields, hallucinogenic mold, carbon monoxide poisoning, and of course the simple power of suggestion. Some students of the paranormal speculate that rather than having external causes, ghostly events are really manifestation of the observer's psychic powers. As for me, I'm still not ready to repeat the words of the cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz. I do believe in spooks. I do, I do, I do. But neither can I deny those flickering lights, nor that running water, nor especially that sliding bottle. I like the attitude Robin Rowers expressed, sipping coffee with me as we watched a misty rainwater a misty rain water the lush garden behind the seasons. Maybe, she said, there are just some things we're not supposed to understand. Yep, good little article. I actually like that, and especially someone who seems to be pretty level-headed. They don't believe every story they're told, but at the same time, they keep an open mind. That's what we try and do around here at the Paranormal Sun. So I hope you like that. I know that's a bit longer. But the next one here we've got is an excellent one from Trey, and this is a very fitting one for this episode. So thanks, Trey, for sending this through. And it's just about sunrise here, so I want to read this one before the sun comes up because uh, it's it, it's a good one. And this is also from LiveScience.com, and this is from October 30th, 2014. This is from Owen Jarris, and it says, 10 ghost stories that will haunt you for life. 
From a spooky 3,200-year-old tale written on broken pottery pieces to amateur YouTube videos of ghost chases, frightening tales of apparitions, demons, and goblins have been documented since ancient times and continue to fascinate people today. Although these paranormal events aren't supposed to be science, they have persisted throughout history. Here's a look at some of the most frightening cases. 1200 BC, Ghost Story from Egypt In 1915, Egyptologist Gaston Maspero published a translation of an ancient Egyptian ghost story, possibly set in Luxor, ancient Thebes shown above, that was discovered on four pieces of pottery. In the story, a ghost of a mummified man tells a high priest of the god Amun about his current condition. I grew, and I did not see the rays of the sun. I did not breathe the air. But darkness was before me every day, and no one came to find me, the ghost says. Translation by Maspero. The ghost seems to complain of some accident that has happened to himself or to his tomb, but I cannot make out what is the subject of his dissatisfaction, Maspero wrote. The ancient Egyptians believed strongly in life after death, and created a series of spells called the Book of the Dead, which they believe helped them reach the afterlife. Ghost of Tupo Tupo was an ancient Chinese ghost with revenge on his mind. Before he died, Tupo served as minister to Chinese Emperor Son, who lived 827 to 783 BC. The two had a disagreement and Swan had Tupo killed in about 786 BC, despite warnings that Tupo would come back and haunt him. Tupo did a lot more than haunt the emperor. Three years later, in 783 BC, Swan was killed with an arrow fired by an apparition resembling Tupo in front of an assembly of feudal lords, wrote Chinese philosopher Mo Su, who lived from 470 to 391 BC. Translation by Yi Po Mi from the Complete Book of Ghosts. Chain Man in Ancient Athens Roman Senator Pliny the Younger, who died in AD 113, told a ghost tale so haunting that it survives to this day. There was in Athens a large and roomy house, which had a bad name, so that no one would live there. In the dead of the night, a noise, resembling the clashing of iron, was frequently heard, which, if you listen more attentively, sounded like a rattling of chains. Disturbances that led to the appearance of a spectre from an old man of extremely emaciated and squalid appearance with a long beard and disheveled hair, rattling the chains on his feet and hands. Needless to say, the house was abandoned and had to be rented out for a cheap price. When a philosopher named Athendorus heard the story, he reportedly rented the house and confronted the ghost. The ghost appeared and rattled around before vanishing. Athendorus calm, uh, calmly marked the spot where the ghost vanished and in the morning ordered that spot be dug up, the story goes. This was accordingly done, and the skeleton of a man in chains was found there, for the body, having lain a considerable time in the ground, was putrefied and moldering away from the chains. After being given a proper burial, the ghost departed, and the house was haunted no more, according to Pliny's tale. Translation from Pliny the Younger, the Harvard Classics. Boarded Up Bathhouse the writer Plutarch, who lived from AD 45 to 120, tells a ghost story that has a much sadder ending than the one from Athens. In the city of Chironia, Greece, there was a boy named Damon who attracted the attention of a Roman military commander who apparently loved him. Historical records suggest Damon refused the commander's advances, enraging him. 
Knowing he would be killed if he did nothing, Damon got a group of friends together, ambushed the Roman commander and several other Roman soldiers, killing them. The city council of Cheronia condemned Damon and his friends to death. After that proclamation, Damon, who had not been killed, had the council members killed. Damon and his friends then took to the countryside, plundering it. Eventually, the townspeople allowed Damon to return, but he was killed shortly afterward in the local bathhouse. And because for a long while afterward, certain phantoms appeared in the place and groans were heard there, as our fathers tell us, the door of the vapor house was walled up. And to this present time, the neighbors think it the source of the alarming sights and sounds, Plutarch wrote. And the translations from Loeb Classic Library. The Tower of London. Britain's numerous castles are hotspots for ghost stories. The 900-year-old Tower of London is said to contain numerous ghosts, and the Queen's House is considered by tower officials to be one of the most haunted locations. Among the ghosts in the Queen's House is that of Arabelle Stewart, cousin of King James I. Arabella made the mistake of marrying against the King's wishes and was sent to the Tower as punishment. According to the ghost story, she is still serving her time. In another spooky tale, a phantom bear is said to haunt one section of the Tower of London, called the Martin Tower. A guard who saw the phantom bear is said to have dropped dead from the shock. The Tower of London served as a menagerie for part of its history and held a variety of animals, including bears. Okay. Aokigara Woods. That's the best you're going to get out of me. Sorry, folks. Aokigara Woods, located at the foot of Mount Fuji in Japan, the corpses of dozens of suicide victims have been found over the past few decades. That's the famous suicide forest. And the forest has become a popular place for troubled Japanese citizens to end their lives. Today there are signs in the forest, urging people not to end their lives and asking them to seek help. Given the number of suicides that have occurred in the forest, ghost stories abound, including several alleged encounters with the apparitions of those who have died there, which, which can be seen on YouTube. The Exorcism of Roland Doe In 1949, a boy from Cottage City, Maryland, who was referred to as Roland Doe, not his real name, underwent an exorcism performed by a group of Roman Catholic priests, accounts suggest. There are conflicting reports as to Roland's psychic or alleged powers. Some stories claim that Roland had supernatural strength, could speak in ancient languages that the boy had no knowledge of, and could apparently move or levitate the mattress he was lying on. Since 1949, investigators have called into question many of these claims, providing evidence to suggest that Roland was a psychologically troubled boy who hated to attend school and that his abilities were far from supernatural. In any event, the exorcism took place. The events inspired a 1971 novel called The Exorcist by William Peter Blatley, which in turn inspired the, the famous 1973 movie. Now, the next one here, and this one is very near and dear to my heart. When I think of all-time ghost stories, this is one that really stands out to me uh, as far as, uh, sorry, not ghost stories, ghost photos. And this is the brown lady of, Rainman, of, of Rainham Hall. In 1936, a photographer taking pictures of the 300-year-old Rainham Hall in Norfolk, UK, captured an image of the apparition floating down the stairs. It's one of the most famous ghost photos ever taken, although some experts believe it was caused by double exposure. Of course they do. 
the manor, covering an area of 7,000 acres, or 2,833 hectares, has a long history of being haunted, and the BBC notes that the ghost may be of Lady Dorothy Townsend, the wife of the second Viscount of the estate. She died in 1726, supposedly of smallpox, after having an affair, which her husband, Lord Townsend, had learned about before her death. She is said to still wander the manor, dressed in brown. The CCTV Ghost Hampton Court, Palace in Surrey, England, now, I know that is the that was the court of King Henry VIII, has a photogenic ghost of its own. In 2003, a CCTV camera caught an image of a skeletal figure clad in centuries-old clothes, closing a sturdy fire door that had flung open. And yes, indeed, uh, it is an interesting photo. It's here in the article if you want to check it out. The ghost, nicknamed Skeletor, attracted a great deal of media attention. It wasn't just security staff who thought they were seeing things. A visitor wrote in the palace's visitor book on the day that Skeletor appeared on camera that she too thought she had seen a ghost in that area, officials wrote on the Hampton Court Palace website. Skeletor is not the only ghostly inhabitant of Hampton Court Palace. Catherine Howard, one of Henry VIII's wives, was imprisoned there and was supposedly dragged to a room screaming all the way. The area that she haunts is called the Screaming Gallery. Amityville. What do you know? We're back to Amityville. The Amityville haunting is perhaps the most famous ghost story in America. Ronald DeFeo Jr. was convicted for the 1974 killing of his mother, father, and four of their children at their home in Amityville, New York. Reports indicate that the gun Ronald used didn't have a silencer, and there was no sign of a struggle inside the house. Facts that left investigators puzzled. In 1975, a new family, the Lutzes, moved into the Amityville home, having bought it at a discounted price. They lived there for less than a month. During that time, voices were heard around the house. Their daughter developed an imaginary friendship with a red-eyed pig called Jody. The house attracted swarms of flies. There was banging on the walls, and the furniture was said to move on its own, according to reports from the family. Paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren were called to investigate, and they also reported encountering paranormal phenomena. Ed Warren said that he was pushed to the floor of the basement by an unknown force. The house still stands today, although recent owners say it is not haunted. The 1977 book, The Amityville Horror, and a number of films are based on the story. So yeah, folks, a few of those I definitely knew or I'd heard of, and several of them I had not. It's uh, something else, but again, it just goes to show that ghosts are a worldwide phenomenon. They... Pretty much every culture that I've ever heard of has got some stories of ghosts or spirits in them, and it is very interesting. So thanks again, Trey, for sending those to me. And that is the news of the dam for the Halloween Spooktacular episode, folks. So go away, get yourself some snacks, get yourself a beverage, be it an adult beverage or a non-alcoholic beverage, whatever you may choose to have, and come back and join me here shortly, and then we're going to get into my stories and a bit of uh, other background and some stories from the state of California. But to kick it off, I will give you that ghost story that I found on Reddit that actually takes place in Singapore. So go away, get yourself your snack, your drink, whatever you may need, and then come back and join us as we get into the meat and potatoes of the Halloween Spooktacular for 2021. Okay, we're back. So I hope you've got everything you need, my friends, to sit back and relax. We're going to kick it off with this ghost story I found on Reddit. 
And this is from Singapore, as I say. And there's a link in the show notes if you want to go and check it out. It just says Reddit. Okay, so it says, I used to be in the military, and the training camp bunk that we lived in was said to be haunted. Occasionally our stuff would go missing and reappear in weird places, like under our bed or inside a bag that we had zipped up and stuff. No big deal, right? I mean, human error and all. Then came the instance that freaked everyone out. It was one night after lights out, and my friend was on his phone texting his girlfriend. Most of us were drifting off to sleep, and we were lying on our beds, etc. Suddenly, he heard the shuffling of feet from the corridor. So, thinking that it was our sergeant, he quickly hid his phone under his pillow, rolled over on his side, and pretended to sleep. Till this day, what happens next chills me to the bone. While he pretended to sleep, he heard someone right behind him on the other side of the bed going, Don't worry, you can continue to pretend sleep. I would dismiss this as a figment of his imagination, except about five other people around him heard it as well, including me. Creepier still, there was no one there, and it was the voice of a little girl that said it. For reference, our training camp was in the middle of an island and was set up away from the main admin blocks. The island has been closed by the government for army training purposes for the past 15 years, so there were definitely no civilians around, let alone kids. To make matters freakier, when we came back from our weekend home leave, there was a bunch of female hair on his bed, neatly bundled up, long, and jet black. Under his pillow was a note. Remember me? Now, as I said, we were in the middle of a forest, in the middle of an island, and at that point in time, there were no female recruits or personnel on the island. Our bunks were locked up for the weekend, and the duty sergeant had no idea that the incident happened. We never spoke about it after that night. Still chills me to the bone, thinking about it. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of a head start on where we're going with some of these stories. I've never had anything quite like that happen to me, but I've had some very interesting experiences, as I say. So it's important to preface by telling you all, I think I mentioned it during last year. It's hard to believe that we I've been doing this for a year and a half now. It's just time really flies. But um, I've never gone looking for any supernatural encounters. Let's say I've never gone out. I've never been the one to go ghost hunting or go out to a graveyard at midnight or anything like that. It just seems like I'm living my life and these things happen to me. So I've had different people say to me, well, what makes you special? Not in an arrogant way, but why do you have these encounters or why do you have things like this happen to you? And the only thing that makes sense to me is that, number one, I very rarely freak out, at least from a visible standpoint. Inside, my heart might be going, you know, like thunder and everything else, but I don't scream and yell and run down the hall or anything else. And second, it's just like I'm going about my day-to-day life when these things happen. So to give you a background of the setting of the areas, when I first moved to Southern California, I lived in a in a town called Fallbrook, which is up in the mountains. So you've got San Diego County, you've got the Mexican border at the southern end picture on the left side or, or west side, you've got the coast running up the ocean. And then on the right, as you move inland, you've got the foothills and then further on you get up into the mountains. Well, Fallbrook was up in the hills. So depending on where you're from, I mean, I'm sure you all know an area, you might live in a flat area or plateaus kind of, and then you know some towns or cities that might be up in the hills. Well, that's how Fallbrook was. 
And there were lots of strange things that went on in Fallbrook. I personally never really experienced a lot of them. But one of the first things that I experienced in living in Fallbrook and being around some of the, the Mexican people, and that's what they were, they're from Mexico. So I don't mean that as a generalization. I mean people from Mexico. All of the people that I knew that told me kind of stories and, and different things were all from from areas of Mexico. Not so much Mexico City, more of the country. And most people know that Catholic and especially people in the country in Mexico and other parts of South America, they're very superstitious. And I knew a few people that I worked with, guys, who would tell me different stories about things that had happened where they were, different things. One guy swore where he lived in Mexico that uh, the devil had come calling more than once and that people had seen him. And there are other stories that these guys told me about demons and that. Then there's the famous Mexican folklore story of uh, La Llorona or the White Lady. And um, I'll probably get it wrong. It's been a long time since I've heard it and I haven't really followed it up. But the the story goes kind of that she drowned her daughter or drowned a girl or something like that. And so you could hear her at night crying out, especially in places like by creeks or rivers or by the sea. And that if you got too close, she would drown you. I'm pretty sure that's how it goes. And there are very many similar stories throughout uh, the American, you know, throughout the U.S. and South, Central and South America of the different tribes. I mean, uh, when I did one of my very, very first episodes about the Pacific Northwest, I talked about water babies that are supposed to be these spirits that if you got close to the water, they would drag you in. If you've seen Lord of the Rings and you remember that that part where they're going through the dead swamp or the dead marshes, whatever it was, and there were these faces in the water and they would try and pull them down. Think of it like that, kind of similar to that. Well, anyway, uh, Fallbrook, like I say, there were some haunted areas. I know there was a large kind of park that was, uh, because Fallbrook had a lot of hills and obviously rocks and boulders and that, and there was a park where supposedly there were uh, American Indian ghosts and that you could hear them beating on the rocks because that's how they used to crush grain and that. Uh, there's also all kinds of stories about the high school in Fallbrook being haunted, but I never really experienced much of it. And like I said, I was a teenager. I was like 18, 19. I was dirt poor and I didn't have a lot of money and I didn't go around poking around looking for things like ghosts or haunted houses or anything like that. But I did have a few stories of things that happened to people that I knew in Fallbrook and the Fallbrook area that lived in and around that area. Now, a few of them, like, kind of, they cross over from the time that I lived in Fallbrook and the time I lived elsewhere. But one of them is that along the coast there, there is a massive U.S. Marine base called Camp Pendleton. And anyone who's been in that area would, you know, they they would definitely know. You would have heard of Camp Pendleton. It for a long time. I don't know if it still is, but it was the biggest U.S. Marine base on the West Coast. It was it was massive. It had like forty thousand plus Marines. They had on-site barracks and places for the Marines and their families to live and everything else. Well, I knew quite a few different Marines there who worked part time off base, or I got to know them through other things. And they had lots of stories about seeing kind of unidentified things, 
lights in the sky, lights going into or coming out of the ocean. And again, this is a live weapons testing area. So there's lots of live ammo, anything like that, uh, that they saw. They always assumed that it was like secret test aircraft. But anytime they would report it, they would basically be told, look, you didn't see what you say you saw. Just let's not worry about it. Let's just basically act like it never happened. And one of them asked their sergeant why off the record later. And he said, because he goes, you don't understand. If if we report these things, if I report it on your behalf, they're going to start watching you. It's going to be detrimental to your career and everything else. So, yeah, I, I mean, several of these guys. And uh, I also knew a few guys there also that were like ex-Special Forces, U.S. Army Rangers and things like that. And they told me there was all kinds of weird things going on in the state of California as far as the military couldn't really categorize or explain it. But it was all kind of kept off the official record, obviously. Um, places like 29 Sands and you've got the I was trying to think of where the um, where the military base is Edwards Air Force Base where they do a lot of missile tests and that and a lot of these guys told me it was just basically if you told your CO your commanding officer it was very much off the books uh, off the record and it was kind of one of those like what do you think I should do and they said almost always they just got told look, this didn't happen. If anyone asks you it didn't happen, don't tell anyone about it. And because this is something I've always been interested in, a lot of times these people would feel, I guess, that they could just open up to me. I had a few of them just outright ask me, what do you think about UFOs? Do you think they could be anything? What do you think they are? And even back then, I mean, I told them most of them I thought were experimental craft, be they the U.S. military or other militaries or other governments. But that there was definitely some that I thought were not of our known government agencies, meaning they were beyond the capability that we knew of. I thought they were beyond the capability of black budget stuff, but I didn't know if they were like a breakaway civilization, extraterrestrial, deep government. You know what I'm saying? Like, and to this day, I still have that feeling on a lot of these. So yeah, a lot of these guys, it was only guys that I knew at that time. I mean, there were, I do believe there were women in the Army and Marine Corps by then, uh, in the late 90s, but I didn't get to know any of them. But all these guys that I talked to, that's what they told me. They're just kind of odd stuff going on. There was also an area, I think it was called Area 47. It's like Area 47 or Area 17, and it was supposedly an area on Camp Pendleton where a Marine committed suicide, shot himself, and that they claim that he still kind of haunted that area. So yeah, interesting, really interesting stuff around there. So yeah, as I got to know these guys, and like I say, especially after uh, the Phoenix Lights, because it was such a big thing. After that happened, a lot of these people felt more freedom talking about things. But again, they would still say, if you ever tell these stories to anyone else, don't mention my name, don't mention my rank or where I'm from, anything else, of course. Because none of them wanted to get in trouble, of course. So where I lived in Fallbrook, and as a matter of fact, uh, for a good while, we were only like, it was maybe a half a mile walk up the road. And that was the back gate to Camp Pendleton right there. So, I mean, this base is so massive. It went from there to like Oceanside in the south. It's like a 40 mile long boundary with the base. Massive base. And they had all kinds of firefights out there and that. 
And it was really interesting because living in this big city and you see lights everywhere and then you would look out towards the west into Camp Pendleton and you would see the lights at the base and you would see the lights on the road, but you would look into the hills and it would all be dark and everywhere else was all lit up because obviously people would build homes in these hills, but not on the base. So yeah, it's really interesting. And then I had a really kind of like a true story. It's definitely a true story, but nonetheless, a freaky story. And this was from the owners of the restaurant that I worked at for uh, several years. And I always really liked working there. And they treated us like family. I mean, we didn't make a lot of money, but I learned a lot working there. And to this day, it's one of the places where, yeah, we had our ups and downs and there were struggles. But it's one of the places I look back at fondly and, and I miss and uh, so this restaurant is no longer around. It was a place called Vince's, and Vince and his wife Kathy owned it, and uh, we worked with their two sons and their daughter there. And Kathy and Vince, um, uh, I know Kathy and Vince both had lived in California for a long time. I mean, since Vince was like a teenager. I think he was originally from Ohio, or his dad moved from Ohio. But anyway, he was like basically born and bred Californians, right? And they grew up, went to college in that during the 60s, uh, and specifically in and around that 66, 67 time frame. Well, they were talking about something, and often couples, you know, especially long-term couples, you're always giving each other guff, and there's always something going on you're teasing each other out about. And I walked out, I was, can't remember what I was doing, but I walked out and I heard Kathy say to Vince, Vince said, oh, I, I just went with my gut feeling. I went with my intuition. And Kathy goes, you're not allowed to go with your intuition, Vince. Do you want me to tell John why? And Vince kind of rolls his eyes and he goes, oh, I'm never going to live this down. And then Kathy proceeded to tell this really interesting story. And she said that back when they were in college uh, in the Los Angeles area, they were dating and they had an apartment together, I believe. And, and again, it's been a long time. Since I heard this story, it would have been about 1990, 95, 96, something like that. So, um, yeah, our, our memories aren't always perfect. But anyway, um, they I, I remember the crux of the story. So they lived in L.A. area, and Vince had always been a guitarist. I mean, when I knew Vince, like, he was always, even though he was in his 40s then, he was still always talking about going home and uh, practicing guitar. He would talk to other, to customers and, like, people that uh, worked with me about guitars and that it was just always something he was interested in. So Kathy said that uh, back then it was kind of, it, it was like you see in a lot of these movies, California was kind of open and a lot of people were learning things from different people. Cause obviously there was no internet. And she said she came home one day and Vince was there with this guy. And Kathy said, as soon as she got home, she had a really weird feeling about this guy. And he walked in, she walked in and she said, oh, Vince, um, what's going on? And he said, oh, we're just jamming out. We're just playing some music. And Kathy like pulled him to the side and she said, who is this guy? And Vince goes, oh, he's, he's great. You know, he's a, he's, he's this great musician. He's a great guitarist. He's taught me all kinds of stuff. I've learned all these different chords and that from him all over. And this guy's going to be a big star. You know, he's really, he's a really great musician and everything else. And he's going to be big. And, um, and, you know, if, if I'm around him, I could have a chance to get discovered as well. But Kathy just had this feeling about him. She did not like him one bit. She's like, I'm not interested. I don't want this guy around. And she basically said to Vince, well, what do you, uh, 
so what's going on? And he said, oh, well, uh, well, tomorrow we were going to, she goes, what? He goes, yeah, tomorrow um, he was going to introduce me to this other guy. I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head. I could look it up, but I can't remember his name. I'll wrap it up at the end uh, when we get to that point anyway. But he was going to introduce me to this other friend of his that's been a producer and he's been involved in music and blah, 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 blah. And she goes, no. No, she goes, look, um, I don't like this guy. I've My women's intuition is telling me this guy, I don't want to be around him. And she goes, if you insist on being around him, then um, you're going to have to find somewhere else to stay. So he got really upset. You know, Vince got quite upset and he said, well, all right, I guess I'll have to find some reason to uh, not hang out with him. And so Vince was pretty aggravated and he went away, but he stopped hanging out around this guy. So it was a few months later or maybe a year, something like that. They were sitting there and they had the, the TV on and this thing came on the news. And they started talking about it and they were talking about these murders that had happened in Hollywood. And and then they said this, they, they showed a face on the TV and Kathy goes, hey, uh, that guy looks familiar, Vince. Wasn't that, wasn't that that guy that you had here, you know, this guitarist and that? And yeah, sure enough, there he was on TV. Uncle Charles, Charlie Manson. Uh, this was the guy that Vince was hanging out with and playing guitar with, and he had brought him home. And um, yeah, uh, really creepy. And the guy that that Charles was going to introduce Vince to was this confidant of his. I can't think of his name. It, it wasn't Tex, but he was going to meet Tex as well. But he was going to meet this other guy, Bobby something. And I can't remember the guy's last name, but he was the one that had a background in like producing and that and he knew quite a bit and kathy basically said after that from that day on vince didn't get to use his intuition anymore kathy's uh women's intu intuition always held the trump card and you can't really blame her can you folks after hearing something like that so yeah uh there's a 100 percent true story about one of the most horrific uh cult leaders of all time and my secondhand story of it now escondido is a ways south and it's not a long way but it's about 35 40 miles south and it's more in san diego area proper fallbrook's at kind of the extreme far northern area of the county and escondido is much closer to san diego city so i've got a bit of background here for you about escondido itself from wiki so it uh so for those of you that are not familiar with the area like i say I just think it's important that I give you a background of Escondido and some of the basic uh, area and, and uh, the background of what we're going to talk about. So Escondido is Spanish for hidden. It's a city in San Diego's North County. So San Diego County's North County. So the northern area outside of the city limits, that's what they call North County. It's about 30 miles or 48 kilometers northeast of downtown San Diego. 15 miles from the ocean, and 40 miles from the Mexican border. The city occupies a shallow valley ringed by rocky hills. Now, it was incorporated in 1888. It's one of the oldest cities in San Diego County. It has a population of 143,911 as of the 2010 census. The Escondido area was first settled by the Luiseño, who established campsites and villages along the creek running through the area. They named the place Mehel Om Pom Pavo. The Luiseno also had another village north of here called Panakeri. The Kumeye, the, the, the so yeah, some of these names, folks, sorry. 
but it's the native tribes. The Kumeye migrated from the areas near the Colorado River, settling both in the San Pasqual Valley and near the San Dieguito, Dieguito River in the southwestern and western portions of what is now Escondido. The 1846 Battle of San Pasqual was a decisive battle between American and California forces during the U.S. conquest of California. Spain controlled the land from the late 18th century to the early 19th century and established many missions in California to convert the indigenous people. When Mexico gained its independence from Spain, the local land was divided into large rancheros. Most of what is now Escondido occupies the former Rancho Recon del Diablo, or Devil's Corner. Now, I'll finish this up and then I'll give you a bit more about the Devil's Corner. A Mexican land grant given to Juan Batista Alvarado in 1843 by Governor Manuel uh, Michel Torreña. Alvarado was a regidor uh, of Los Angeles at the time and the first regidor of the Pueblo of San Diego. The southern part of Escondido occupies the former Rancho San Bernardo, granted in 1842 and 1845. In 1846, during the Mexican-American War, the Battles of San Pasqual was fought southeast of Escondido. This battle pitched Mexican forces under Andres Pico, brother of the then-Californian governor Pio Pico, against Americans under Stephen W. Kearney, Archibald Gillespie, and Kit Carson. A park in Escondido is named for Kit Carson, which is very true. Now, Devil's Corner. There's a man, and many of you who are into what I talk about, and especially cryptids, would know this man. His name is David Polides, and he's written a series of books called Missing 411, and, but Missing 411 was his, his first book. And he points out that a lot of areas in the U.S. and other countries in the world, areas where you have places that have got the, the name the devil in it, so the devil's punch bowl, the devil's um, the devil's playground, things like that, there tends to be a greatly increased amount of missing people in those areas, people who go missing. So I found it interesting that uh, you've got this uh, this rancho was called Rincon del Diablo, or Devil's Corner. So yeah, interesting one. Now before we get into my connection, my connection to Escondido, let's discuss some of the purportedly haunted locations in the town. The Escondido Public Library is purportedly haunted by a gentlemanly Mexican vaquero dressed in 1700s or 1800s clothing, including an elaborate sombrero. Witnesses to the dapper gent include a worker whom, one night during a renovation of the library, ran into him while turning a corner into another aisle. They faced each other for a moment, then the spirit vanished. Employees working alone at night have seen books knocked from shelves and have felt the ghost's presence. Escondido was once the site of a large land grant, and ranchero named Rancho del Diablo. Could this ghost be the former wealthy landowner, and could the library be built over the spot where his home once stood? It seems only the employees know of the legend. So best to seek them out for more info. They are all extremely friendly and helpful. Go and check it out for yourself. The second one. On December the 6th, 1846, as, as I've talked about, one of the bloodiest battles of the U.S.-Mexican War took place on horseback in the San Pasqual Valley between Mexican Californios and U.S. Dragoons. Strickland said many ghost sightings have occurred at battlefields because those locations were once a focal point of heightened human emotion, which makes sense. I mean, again, folks, I've covered over 
Gettysburg, for example, in Pennsylvania. Psychics have pinpointed hot spots of violence on the property, and others have seen ghostly soldiers in uniform on horseback and heard voices, including one who mentioned the name of Major Andres Pico, the leader of the Californios. And that address is 15808 San Pasqual Valley Road. The next one here is, There are many ghostly legends about these winding hills between Escondido and San Marcos, though none appear to have much basis in fact. There were reports that around the turn of the 20th century, a group of gypsies were slaughtered when they refused to leave the area. People also reported sightings of a 10-foot owl that soared in the skies at night, as well as a witch seen riding a black stallion through the hills. One of the most common stories was the sighting of a lady in white, perhaps drawn from the Mexican folklore legend of La Llorona, a floating ghost woman who weeps for the souls of her dead children. Strickland said many people have reported feeling a sense of impending doom when they drive through the area at night. And spoiler alert, we're going to talk about that soon. She hasn't seen anything there in her drives other than fog and mist in the headlights. And again, I'll be covering that in more depth really soon. Four. And this is the, the other one in town, the North County Times newspaper building. Now, it's reportedly haunted, and most sightings have been of either a young girl or glowing, floating lights. Now, folks, I got an email when I asked for ghost stories, and this is anonymous, but ironically, it's from someone in Escondido, or who lived in Escondido once. It says, my husband, daughter, and I lived in the Sonata neighborhood in Escondido, from 1985 until 1993. During the time we lived in this house, I would see fleeting shadows out of the corner of my eye when entering or leaving a room. The downstairs room was also always very cold, bordering on always very cool, sorry, bordering on cold. My daughter admitted to me that she would see a shadow man that would stand in the entry and watch her, but sometimes would follow her up the stairs until she would close her door. She stated that she had such a state of dread at night that it was very difficult for her to sleep soundly. We surmise that this paranormal activity could be related to the Kit Carson battle at San Pasqual and the subsequent retreat to Mule Hill. The actual location of Mule Hill was roughly in the same area of our home. So that's a bit of a creepy one, folks. And that area of Escondido is in the far east of town toward San Pasqual. Now, I lived several years in a boarding house, which was mainly inhabited by... 30 to 60 or 70 year old bachelors. And if those residents weren't odd enough, folks, I've also had several encounters there. But uh, first, I want to give you some background. So, this building, and I'd forgotten about it, I had to fire up the old Google machine and get some information about it. But this building was and is called the Hotel Charlotta. Now, this is part of an article from the San Diego Tribune. Uh, from January the 31st, 1915. says, Hotel open in sun-kissed Vale. Valley's ideal climate lauded. Middle Westerners seeking earthly paradise, glad of choice, guests by hundreds attend dinner and dance at new hostelry. Escondido, January 30th. With the formal opening tonight of Hotel Charlotta, Charlotta Heights, Escondido, an enterprise happily launched after an expenditure by its owner, Harry J. Shrupp, of approximately $25,000, goes the story of how Shrupp came to locate in the Sunkissed Vale. He first heard of the charms of the valley in 1903, while a guest at Hotel Del Coronado, where, with his family, he was accustomed to pass a portion of each year. And the Hotel Del Coronado is something that I'm going to 
have to just talk about entirely differently at another time, folks. It's, uh, yeah, that, that's its own kind of freaky deaky thing. That's, uh, that's very famous. That's what the song Hotel California is based on. And it is one of the major landmarks of San Diego. And along with the Whaley House, it's probably purported as the most haunted buildings in San Diego. During the following four years, while a guest at the big hotel at Coronado, he spent considerable time at Escondido, until finally he changed from Coronado for an entire season. An underdeveloped section of the range of hills overlooking the valley from the west and commanding a wonderfully fine view to all points of the compass took his fancy. This, said he, shall be my future country home. I will erect a house upon this spot, set out oranges and lemons, beautify the grounds, and make it attractive for my family and my friends. And in honor of my daughter, Charlotta, I will call it Charlotta Heights. And it is it, it did have very beautiful views. The decision of purchase was reached in 1907, when Shrupp bought for a nominal sum 17 acres, which through his enterprise has come to be the beauty spot of the valley. Since that time, he has added 20 acres to his holdings, and all save two acres of the 37 are improved with a splendid stand of orange and lemon trees. And in the center of this beautiful setting, on the highest point of the land, he has built Hotel Charlotta, which according to its size, ranks with the best tourist hotels of the country uh, back then. It is a two-story structure of the mission type of architecture. It has 25 sleeping apartments, all of them fronting outside exposures, all of them elaborately furnished, and all of them pleasant. The office is on the first floor, and it, it was, yeah, which also includes a sun parlor, living room, dining, and ballroom. The latter, which looks out upon the rolling country to the west, has a seating capacity of 100. The second floor is devoted to sleeping rooms. Each is equipped with hot and cold water, a lavatory, electric light, gas, mahogany furniture, and brass bedsteads. The building is supplied with steam heat throughout. It has spacious porches on both stories, all being equipped with electric lighting facilities. Huge stone fireplaces are features on the lower floor. That's true, yeah, I do remember that. The arrangement and furnishings of the house are a tribute to the artistic taste of the owner, who has the, the roper conception of what patrons of such hotels want and who has spared neither time nor money to meet the demand. So uh, I'd say there's a P missing there, proper conception. Located at 637 Upas. In Escondido, California, the Charlotta Hotel was built in 1915 in the craftsman's style. So sorry, this is so the article had a bit more, and they were going on about kind of a gala dinner, and I cut that out. This is a bit more of an update, uh, give you an idea of the building. The hotel was owned by Harry J. Shrupp. The hotel was named for his daughter. It was later sold to other owners and eventually demolished. An apartment building now stands at the site. Now, I, I don't know how true that is because. When I look at Google Earth, there's no apartment building at the site. Um, I think they're talking about another hotel, which we'll get into very shortly. On January 7, 1993, the site was designated a histor historical point of interest. And when I lived there, it was pa after 1993. So I do remember that you couldn't do much. Not that we did anyway, because we just rented rooms, but they couldn't do a lot of work to it. For years, the 100-room Hotel Escondido, completed in 1886, was the preeminent hostelry in inland northern San Diego County. Now, I think that is the one that's they, they built the uh, apartment blocks over. 
Land salesmen, land speculators, and prospective homesteaders stayed at this hotel in the city of Escondido, was founded, and grew. And 1915 promised to be a bumper year for the hotel, with the 1915 Panama Pacific Ex Excavation <laughs> Exposition scheduled to be held in San Diego at today's Balboa Park. But some competition was afoot. Henry J. Shrupp had purchased a hilltop parcel of 30 acres southwest of town, so this is the... Uh, where the Hotel Charlotte is, named at Charlotte Heights after his daughter and built a modern hotel, also named after his daughter. While smaller than the Hotel Escondido, it offered more modern amenities. Both hotels were filled to capacity most of the time that the exposition was underway in San Diego. But when the boom of business abated, after the close of the exposition, the smaller, more modern Hotel Charlotte drew most of the traveler's custom, and the Hotel Escondido faded into oblivion, closing for good in 1920 and the building was demolished in 1925. So, folks, it ended up being the surviving building of a hotel war. I had no idea. Like I say, I know it was an older building. It was not... It wasn't a dump when I lived there, okay? But there, there were a lot of things that didn't get repaired, and I would say that that was part of it being a registered historic building. So, anyway, I want to give you a background of this building. It was up a alley of a side street so what i'm saying is we had neighbors quote unquote but it would be kind of like living in a just trying to think it would be kind of like living in a small park or domain something like that because what i'm saying is from the borders of the boundary there's no there were no houses right on the boundary there were a couple up i'm trying to remember because it's been a very long time since i lived there uh, over 20 years um, I do remember coming up the drive and there might have been some closer houses on the right side of the building along the property line there. But anyway, I'm just giving you an idea that this was one of those places, although you were in the middle of kind of a good sized city, it didn't feel like it when you were there because of the location. You'd hear planes and you could hear the freeway traffic, but outside of that, you would not think you were in a major city, you know, good sized city. Well, anyway, I lived there, uh, I was trying to do the math the other day. I would have lived there for about... seven. I would have lived there for two-ish, two to three years. And I remember when I first lived there, I lived in a very cramped, small uh, room on the second floor. I had no window. It was just basically a shoebox, right? So I'm thinking that must have been an old servants quarters or like a storage room but it was a very small room um now from a very early time of living there i knew something was odd with this property because for example this room got very hot and california it's like for those of you that live in australia very hot temperatures like there i mean the only time it ever cooled down is at night or early morning in the afternoons it's you know well over a hundred 110 115 degrees fahrenheit in the summer so in celsius you know you're talking 40 45 50 degrees somewhere in there and so in the evening i would tend to have the door open in the hall because it was very hot now from my room i believe there were two more rooms before you got to kind of like the there was a bit there was a door that went outside and a little bit of a uh landing but it was like you went out and then there's a balcony. So there's one, what I'm saying is there's like one doorway 
entrance into this balcony. There's nowhere else to go unless you jump off the balcony. So if someone goes out on the balcony, they can't get away from your viewpoint. But I'm telling you, more than once, I saw someone or something go past my door going towards that balcony. And I'd go out to see who it was because I think maybe it was one of my neighbors coming home. And they weren't there. Again, you're talking about old skeleton key locked rooms. So you couldn't just yank the, the room, the door open and, and, and hop in the hall. On the other side, there's the, the balcony, uh, kind of like the, uh, the wooden balcony to keep you from falling down the stairwell. And then when you get down a little further on the right, it's just like it, it was like cupboards where they kept the sheets and blankets and that for the room because the, the cleaners used to come and they, they, like I say, as a boarding house, you didn't change your own uh, bed linens. The, uh, the cleaner would come and do it. So there was nowhere to go in there. And then out on the balcony, I'd walk out on the balcony and there'd be no one there. And even if they jump, they're jumping from the second story. They're not just going to get up and run away. And you would hear them running because it was a dirt car park with gravel over it. So you, you would hear somebody walking. So, yeah, really interesting. Um, and after a while, I just kind of got used to it. I'd be like, oh, well, um, nothing's really going on. You know, I thought it might be a cat or whatever. But I just see things kind of out of the corner of my eye and moving quite quickly. Now, as time went on, I managed to get a much better room. And when I say much better, I mean like I actually had my own bathroom. There were only a few rooms that had a full-size fridge and their own bathroom. And I also had a door that went out onto a balcony. So it was, look, it was awesome. I had a bathtub. I mean, it was great. For being a bachelor, it was everything that you needed. A uh, fairly large-sized room. Had my TV in there and a dresser and a crock pot. And yeah, it was great. I didn't have a stove, but I had a heating element, so you could cook. It was just on those little, like, stove heating elements, electric ones. Well, in that room, the same. I mean, I'd, you'd leave your door open at night, especially if you were watching TV or something, because it was so hot. And more than once again, I would see something out of the corner of my eye, and I'd immediately go out, uh, because it it could only be someone coming from left to right across my door because that was the only place that the main stairs from the downstairs lobby went up. You could go out on the balconies, but because of them being old and um, having issues with safety, there was nowhere you could come up those balconies from outside. So you had to come up the main stairs, and then we could go around and walk on the balconies, but there was no way to get up to the balconies from the floor, if that makes sense. So I had two two people who had rooms on my right. And then when you went around the corner, there was a bathroom and another door that went out to the balcony on the other side of the building. So literally there was, again, you go out there, there's nowhere for anyone to go. I went out, wasn't my neighbors, went and checked the bathroom. No one's in there. No one's on the balcony. And that happened multiple times. And I, like I said, uh, I, I would just get these feet. Like I'd see things out of the corner of my eyes. I never got a full on look. I never got a full-on view. I never saw a shadow person, anything like that. But I definitely had that feeling like there were there were things going on there, and there were definitely entities there other than the people that lived there. Yeah. Um, and the caretaker, quote, manager, whatever you want to call him, of the site. So he was basically the on-site manager for the owner to make sure people were paying their rent. He'd break up brawls. and Because, again, it's all guys living together. Many of them getting drunk because they 
kind of down on their luck. Um, and so he was the on-site manager. And he said lots of odd, strange, bizarre things went on. He said, for example, uh, one time they kicked someone out because they didn't pay. And the guy said he was going to come back. And because they thought he had a spare, they changed the locks on the room. So uh, the manager thought, okay, no big deal. And he went downstairs. He went upstairs about two hours later, and the guy's room, the door was wide open. And he said to me, John, it's impossible because it was a deadbolt lock. I locked the deadbolt lock from the outside with the key. No one had the spare key. So even if the guy had a spare, and if he would have turned up, I would have seen him come in. And on top of that, there was no one that had the key that could get in the room. He said the key never left his pocket. It wasn't like he left it on his desk or anything. And he said when he went in the room, it had an odd smell. And I said, odd? well, what do you mean? And he said, oh, you know when someone's been living in a in a room, like be it a motorhome or a car, it's got that very strong body odor smell that like basically someone's been baking in the heat in there. He said, that's what it smelled like. And he said, he goes, I swear it didn't smell like that before because the cleaner had just got done like dosing it with uh, pine salt or whatever. So it had like a chemical piney type smell the furthest thing from a body odor or anything. And he said, and even when they moved his stuff out, it didn't smell like that. So yeah, he, he told me, he said, if you hear things around here, if you see things around here, you'll be far from the first person that does. And he also just told me, he goes, he's never, he never had any reports of anything kind of nefarious going on where it completely freaked anyone out or anything. He said, most of the guys just assumed it was something they were drinking or something they were smoking. Now, uh, the, creepiest story of this all though was one about a guy who lived downstairs now when you first so you came up the side street entrance to the car park and then you would drive along the left and there were that's where we parked as you walked forward there was a entrance into the building you walked in you were in the uh what do you want to call it the kind of the foyer area on the left was the manager's room, which was that the office they're talking about, there was the little sunroom. And just as you walked in, there was a room on the bottom floor that fronted the outside. And it had these big kind of bay windows. And there was a guy that lived in there when I first moved in. And they used to call him Beelzebub. And they used to call him Lord of the Flies. And I know it's a bit cruel, but the reason they called him Lord of the Flies was he used to collect newspapers like old newspapers and magazines. And he had them all stacked up on the floor, like hundreds of them. And they kept telling him to get rid of them, kept kept telling him to get rid of them because of a fire hazard. And in the windows behind where he would have these papers and that stacked up, there'd be all these dead flies in there. And that's why they called him Lord of the Flies. Well, anyway, um, he got sick and he went into the hospital. He either, I, I can't remember. He either went in the hospital or he went away and saw his sister um, because he was ill and he was staying with her. But I do believe he was in the hospital. And then, again, uh, over time, I've forgotten this. It wasn't me personally. I didn't see this. But it was either someone who came there. And I can't remember if it was a friend of mine or it was a friend of one of the other people who came there because it's been that long. But they basically came in and, and after they made small talk, they said, oh, who's who's that guy in the front? They said, who are you talking about? And they said, oh, that guy um, on the first floor in the room. He was sitting there staring at me out the window. 
And they said, no, there's no one in there. The guy who was in there is gone. They haven't rented the room out yet, but, you know, he's basically on death's door. And so, you know, these, he's not there. No one's, no one's there in that room. Well, we found out later that just about that time, roughly, that afternoon that they saw him is when he died uh, in the hospital. So I don't know if he came back one more time to check out his his place or he just didn't know he was dead and he went back to where he thought he should be. Um, I don't know. But it was always a really interesting one and one that really sent chills up and down my spine. But yeah, you always felt like there was something going on at that place. And again, it wasn't necessarily an evil type feeling, but it was definitely an uneasiness that something was watching you or something was around, something was going on. I mean, you'd see, you'd look down the balcony and there's no one, there's only like two doors to go out on that balcony and you'd look down the balcony and you would swear you could see someone just down at the end of the balcony and then you'd you'd look fully like you'd kind of glance and you'd look and there'd be no one there. So yeah, it was a bit of a spooky place. Uh, I also rode out a 7.3 earthquake in that building in the middle of the night. Yeah, sure enough, um, I was listening to Coast to Coast and I think it was when Art was still doing the show and uh, started feeling this kind of shaking and I didn't know what was going on. And after about 10 or 15, because at first I thought it felt like somebody had a washing machine. And then I thought, oh, well, hold on. No one's got a washing machine here. Um, I think we had some, but they were like downstairs, uh, but there were definitely none upstairs. And then when they had the news break, uh, they said, oh, yeah, there's 7.3 earthquake in Joshua, Joshua Tree uh, Park. Oh, OK. And because the building was wooden, it moved. It would have taken the shock. It would have moved a lot more than if the building would have been made out of brick or concrete or something else. So, yeah, it was <laughs> that was definitely that was the first big earthquake I ever lived through. So, yeah, folks, that is the story of the Hotel Charlotta. Um, I do kind of wonder how many other people had stories or happenings there or or just kind of felt like something was up. I don't know if any guests ever died in their rooms or anything like that. And when I say that, I mean back, especially back in the day. But I never saw anything close enough and I never saw an apparition to say it was like someone in 1930s clothing or anything nothing like that it was just much more unformed shapes out of the corner of my eye and yeah i i get that some people could say oh well people can have that and pareidolia and all that but i've only ever had that in a few a few times in my ha in my life and in certain areas and like for example where i live now i've never had that experience where i've seen something out of the corner of my eye and nothing's there i mean yes i'll be sitting in the front room i see something out of the corner of my eye because the big bay windows facing the street are there. And when I look, it's a dog or a cat or a bird. There's something there. So, yeah, living there, very, very interesting. And uh, a place I'll never forget. I don't know if they do tours or anything like that. And I don't think you'd see anything too super exciting. But it's definitely one of those places I think it's pretty cool that I lived there. So earlier, while we were talking about Escondido and we were talking about the hills between Escondido and San Marcos in this area, in northern San Diego County. You heard me talking about the weirdness that goes on in this forest. Well, for for the people that know the area, and especially people who grew up in the area, it's uh, known as Elfin Forest. And so those who know this, it's one of those things, if you know, you know. And Elfin Forest is an unincorporated residential community 
of San Diego County in the foothills of the Santa Rosa Mountains. The community is southwest of Escondido in the Escondido zip code of 92029. It borders the rural, unincorporated town of Harmony Grove to the northeast, San Marcos to the north and west, Olive Hain to the southwest, and Rancho Santa Fe to the south. This rural community is located about nine miles by road from the Pacific Ocean and contains large homes on rolling hills and many trails for hiking and horseback riding. Most of the properties, which are split between the Rancho Santa Fe School District and the San Diego High School School District, have amenities for horses and or grow trees like avocado, orange, lemon, and grapefruit. Elfin Forest is home to a large number of domestic horses and animals. Now, why is that? Because the community maintains a strict minimum on lot size requirements of 2 acres, or 8,100 meters, and does not allow subdividing. So, what that means is that you've got uh, an area that's rural. It's just outside of some of these cities. Now, I haven't been there for a long time, but from memory, when you went out there, it was like you basically went from city to country and in the blink of an eye, and it was pretty strange for Southern California at the time. But what keeps it this way is these large lot sizes, so you can't subdivide it, you can't crowd people onto it, you can't make apartments and small townhouses and things like that. So this keeps it pretty sparsely populated. Now, Elfin Forest is also said to be one of the most haunted places in the world, but as with a lot of these haunted places, it is pretty contentious. I will say that. Now, this is from Atlas Obscura, okay? So this is the entry about Elfin Forest. Elfin Forest, Escondido, California. This dark, quiet forest on the outskirts of San Diego is dense with rumors and lore. In what seems to be a concentration of urban legend and tall tales, this fantasy-soaked forest is located in, un in the unlikely demographic of sunny San Diego. Also known as Quest Haven, the area is rumored to have once been inhabited by gypsies at the turn of the 19th century. Local legend has it that residents from neighboring communities came in and drove them off, slaughtering those who stood their ground. In turn, the surviving gypsies cursed the elfin forest and its surrounding lands. There is evidence that possible ancestors of the northern Degueno Native American tribes lived in the Elfin Forest area. Many artifacts have been found, and efforts to preserve others are underway. Mortars, metates, pictograms, and petroglyphs discovered there help shed light on the Yuman language that they were known to have spoken, and contribute to a clearer understanding of their way of life which began more than 9,000 years ago. With its curving roads, twisting trees growing over pathways, eerie sights and sounds, and a total lack of cell phone reception, the Elfin Forest, thought to be haunted by superstitious locals, is the subject of dozens of urban legends. Many revolve around its abandoned, gated insane asylum, the entrance to which is marked by an old wooden fence and a sign with sleeping elves painted on it reading Elfin Forest. Behind the torn fence lie acres of land, and decaying building foundations. Other tales of haunted spirits and paranormal activity attached to this area include trees that bleed, a ghost lady dressed in white that follows hikers through the trails, Native American bodies hanging from trees, shadowed figures that hide in the shrubbery, and other strange apparitions taking place over the rumored Native American burial grounds. 
With more than its share of myth and mystery, this wooded area is perfect for those with an active imagination and time to stroll through the trees searching for signs of ghosts and goblins. This is a great place to hike. However, these woods are extremely haunted. The white lady is seen along the trails, usually in broad daylight. Hikers report being touched on the shoulders and watch as she floats above the ground and passes through objects. Most see a smiling woman from a distance, only to realize it's a ghostly apparition. People driving along the dark, wooded road at night have reported seeing her floating in the woods as well. Some people have reported seeing apparitions of Native American bodies hanging from trees. The native northern Deguano Indians once inhabited this land, dating back thousands of years. One theory is that the area could also be a Native American burial ground. Locals say there are stone circles in the forest and that if you pass through them, you will experience time lapses. It is claimed there was a sanitarium in the area that burnt down years ago. When the place caught on fire, many of the patients were trapped and burned to death. Some ran into the woods, on fire, screaming in terror, only to die from their wounds. There are reports of laughing, screaming apparitions of these patients and that are seen lurking in the forest. Many people mistake this place with Questhaven Retreat down the road. Questhaven Retreat has nothing to do with the sanitarium and is on private property. There are also rumors that gypsies lived in the area and cursed the land when they were forced to leave. All this and the tales of a giant killer white owl, along with stories of cults performing dark rituals, makes this place a creepy place to visit. And then I've got another little entry here about the strange history of the area. And this says, There is evidence that the possible ancestors of the northern Deguano Indians lived in the Harmony Grove area. An archaeological bonanza, many artifacts have been found, and efforts to preserve others are underway. Okay, I already, looks like I already read that, sorry. Just skipping ahead here. Okay. There are ancient petroglyphs in rocks at the extreme western end of Ninth Avenue. These are Indian symbols and have connection with others found in Escondido, Hemet, Borrego, and Rancho Bernardo. They seem to be direction finders, similar to the magnificent rocks at Stonehenge in England. Spook's Canyon. In the 1880s, a Welshman named Spook homesteaded in the Elfin Forest Valley. As recently as 1971, remains of his orchard could be seen. It is probably because of this man that we hear the term Spook's Canyon, which has been a nickname the valley has had for years. The meetings of spiritualist groups in Harmony Grove provide another version of origin for that nickname. The name also fits in well with the ghosts and legends that are part of the area. The old stagecoach route is haunted by the Phantom Stage of Carrizo. It is seen in the Anza Borrego State Park. Before the turn of the century, the Butterfield Stagecoach Company used Harmony Grove Road as part of its route from Escondido to San Diego. The route went from Ramona to Escondido, followed the Escondido Creek, turned west to Encinitas, and then south to San Diego. A man named Park Rider had a store near the junction of Harmony Grove and Elfin Forest Roads. The road was paved in the late 1950s, and after the, the vacation ranch closed down in the 1990s, even the few remaining bricks from the store disappeared. The area's beauty, year-round streams and shade trees, as mentioned earlier, led Dr. Harvey Urban, Jack Donnelly, and George Dew to buy 20 acres at the junction of what is now Harmony Grove and Elfin Forest Roads in 1959. They built a house and a dam to create a lake and began adding spaces for trailers, campers, and mobile homes. Additional land, for a total of 97 acres, was purchased and a grocery store was opened. 
It was referred to as the Elfin Forest Vacation Ranch. They provided boating, fishing, movies, and square dancing. When Dr. Urban opened those acres up to public camping, the campground and the valley around it became popularly known as Elfin Forest. The campground no longer exists. I was going to say, I didn't remember hearing about a campground when I was there. More history. Up until 1977, the community was sparsely developed. In addition to the Quest Haven Retreat, Harmony Grove Spiritualist Association, and the Elfin Forest Vacation Ranch, there were a few older homes in the surrounding hills. Many new homes were built between 1977 and 1980. Inflation caused interest rates to rise, and home building slowed until late 1984. From 1985 to 1992, there was a boom in building in the area. It is estimated that the population of the area grew to 450 homes, with with 15 to 20 homes being added each year. From 1992 to 1995, the economic slowdown in San Diego caused building to almost cease. 1996 saw a pickup in the economy with some new building. The population, according to the last census, stood at 1,000 in 1996, with a projected population of 2,156 in the year 2015. In 1978, there were heavy rains in San Diego County. The Elfin Forest Harmony Grove area was severely impacted as torrents of water rushed down Escondido Creek, causing a 40-year flood. The beautiful lake in the vacation ranch was swept away. The basin around it was severely flooded, and the ranch was devastated. Dr. Irvin, who had plans to develop it into an exclusive mobile home estate, died shortly afterwards, and his family were forced to sell the acreage. There were plans to develop the ranch into a Lawrence Welk type of mobile home park called Lake Elfin Forest, but the plans were not approved by the county. The Elfin Forest Recreational Reserve's main trail climbs 1,200 feet and has many tributary trails. The Escondido Creek mark marks the trailhead. The main trail is a 1.6 miles, which meanders up a wall, then leads up to the numerous trails of varying difficulties. There is a botanical trail well-marked, describing the various plant life in the area. One can also extend the hike about nine miles one way over the mountain to Lake Hodges. Now, I've got one more here, which is an article from kind of the community paper in the area. And this is the mystery of Quest Haven, exploring the rumors of hauntings in the Elfin Forest. And this was from 2011. Nestled in the thick foliage of the Elfin Forest, lives many lost spirits, or at least so says local lore. Today the area is dotted with new shops and condos thanks to the mushrooming community of the San Alijo Hills, but once upon a time this land was called Quest Haven and said to be a spiritual place, even haunted. No doubt many San Diego residents have unknowingly driven through it, as it's a surefire shortcut to Escondido that spits travelers out from Rancho Santa Fe Road to Auto Parkway in less than four minutes. The short drive through Harmony Grove and Elfin Forest not only feels like something out of the Twilight Zone, but it also feels like a mindless time warp. I'll give you more on that later. The area is rumored to once have been inhabited by gypsies and their social kin at the turn of the 19th century and well into the 20th century. Legend has it that other natives and residents from the neighboring communities came in and drove off the gypsies, slaughtering those who stood in their way. In turn, the gypsies cursed the Elfin Forest and its surrounding lands. Apparently, it was this curse that has caused many of the urban legends and paranormal activity that has been reported through the years. 
Coincidentally, there are also accounts of native northern Degueno Indians who once inhabited the land dating back 9,000 years. So, I mean, isn't that a classic mix? A gypsy curse and Native American burying ground. With curvy roads, creepy trees growing over the pass, and eerie sights and sound, Questhaven embodies many fears that seep into the holes of the subconscious and have the power to test the nerves and will of many. With no cell phone reception or friendly places to look to with pleas for help, if rumors hold true, the horrors of Questhaven sound overwhelming for any brave soul to face alone. A few locations that are glorified in the tales of Questhaven are the stories of the abandoned insane asylum and the legendary cult house. With gates and barbed wire lining the property, the entrance to the ruins of the rumored insane asylum has an old wooden fence and a sign with sleeping elves painted on it, reading Elfin Forest. Behind the torn and defiled fence lays acres of land and building foundations left in shambles, defended by armies of nocturnal spirits and savage animals. The danger of trekking across the depths of Questhaven sounds high from reported accounts of paranormal activity. As for the cult house, while there are many Mock Blair videos that, uh, sorry, uh, Mock Blair Witch videos that high schoolers and amateur filmmakers have endeavored to make on the on the supposed cult property, reporting scenes of nooses hanging from burned trees, broken bones and skulls crushed into the mulch and brush, unearthly cackles and noises flying around in the night air. The rumors have even have even failed, fabled that when said filmmakers go back to review their footage, that there is just black static that fills the screen and curdling screams that sound off in the distance. Furthermore, what would Questhaven be if there weren't spine-tingling urban myths attached to fend off the faint of heart? When researching Questhaven, there are a few prevalent myths that rise to the top. The first tells a tale of a ten-foot-tall white owl that roams the midnight moonlit sky. The ghostly owl sneaks about, preying on naive young people who enter the forest. If the visitors are in their car, the owl lands atop of the car and possesses several ways of murdering the vehicle's passengers. If the visitors are on foot, it swoops down to capture them and sacrifices them. There are other stories about the owl, however many do not speak of the owl in fear of repercussion. The second myth tells of a witch that haunts the elfin forest. Stories of the witch solicit extreme caution should one choose to enter the forest, for hers is the deadliest and scariest of stories. The witch has been in the forest since the persecution of the gypsies. She rides the roads of the forest on a ghostly black stallion, with a black cloak that covers her face and body. The witch has omnipotent vision and senses when a stranger or intruder has entered the forest. It is said that one that once someone enters the forest in Questhaven, the witch marks that person, leaving no physical indication, but more of a spiritual mark. Once marked by the witch, that person faces death if he or she ever enters the forest again. Those who claim to have seen the witch say they did not hear her galloping stallion, and that instead, the witch and her horse float along in the shadows. Never in clear sight, her victims will never really know what they see when they witness her. It is also rumored that by chance if victims do see her eyes as they pierce a ray of green light, that they are immediately killed. There are also stories of drivers killing themselves because the witch follows their vehicle in the trailing shadows, invoking complete insanity and sometimes paralysis, then causing the driver to steer his or her car into an oncoming tree, ledge, or cliff. 
Other tales of haunted spirits and paranormal activity attached to the area include trees that bleed, a ghost lady dressed in white that follows hikers throughout the trails, Native American bodies hanging from the trees, shadowed figures that hide in the shrubbery, and other weird apparitions that possess that possess the spec the speculated Native American burial grounds. Upon further investigation, it has been found that there is a religious re retreat center called the Quest Haven Retreat Church of the Holy Quest that sits on 640 acres of wilderness. Some speculate that it is this retreat center, which was erected in the early 1940s, that is mistaken for the insane asylum and the cult house. However, there are no official records that have been found linking this theory or linking the legends of the retreat center, as there is no record of any insane asylum existing in the Elfin Forest, Harmony Grove, or Quest Haven. Rumors apparently hold more weight in the chance of experiencing supernatural activity. For now, Quest, Quest Haven truly remains a mystery, as the stories and sensations that haunt it continue to be aggravated by the growing population of inhabitants. One thing remains certain, though. No one will ever really know what lies beneath Quest Haven or lurks in the shadows in Elfin Forest. Elfin Forest, which neighbors Quest Haven and Harmony Grove, is not only great for hiking, but also for delving deeper into the mysteries that surround this area. Like its popular neighboring communities, the Elfin Forest is rumored to be extremely haunted, with hundreds, if not thousands, of stories and sightings to back up that claim. The most popular myth is about the White Witch. As the story goes, her husband and son were murdered out there a long time ago. Rumor has it she is still looking for her family, or possibly the person who murdered them. If you speak to the people at the Harmony Grove Spiritual Center, which is the area's, which is the area's psychic village, they say that she finally found the light many years ago. They used to see her regularly, but haven't seen her for years. There are also stories of the northern Deguano Indians haunting these grounds. Now the Elfin Indians. There has been a lot of evidence that the northern Deguano Indians lived in the area, like I say. There are petroglyphs which have been found on one man's property. Tours to view these ancient findings are occasionally held, but you have to be in you have to be in the know to be part of them. It is believed that the symbols found in the area are tied into other similar drawings which have been found in Escondido, Hemet, Borrego, and Rancho Bernardo. Those are all local towns in that area, kind of in a in a maybe like a hundred mile circle. They were once used in navigating they were once used as navigating symbols. Sources suggest that the Elfin Forest and its surrounding areas were a meeting ground for many of the tribes, and that these grounds were said to have good energy. One must wonder what went wrong for a once peaceful meeting ground to now be rumored to have dark energy. Two tribes that we know of whom inhabited this area were the San Deguenos and the Luiseno Indians. There has sadly been a lot of development on both sides of Elfin Forest, but as of now, the area remains untouched. This used to be an old vacation ranch for RVs that now sits in ruins. So, there's a lot to unpack there, folks. And as I say, look, I'm no fool. When you take a major metropolitan area like San Diego, uh, I don't know how many people are there now, but when I lived in San Diego County, you had a population north of 5 million people. So when you've got this large area and not a lot of country or greenery in that area, and what I mean by that is like large tracts of, of kind of underpopulated land or not heavily developed land, and you plunk a forest like this out in the middle of it, there's, there's bound to be rumors that are going to spring up. 
and especially when it goes back generation to generation, because I've read stories about people from the 40s and 50s and 60s going out there, especially school kids, you know, high schoolers, and seeing things or encountering things. Now, I will tell you this. I've never been to Hoya Bakshu in Romania. Maybe I'll get there one day. It seems to be a pretty good parallel with the major difference that, I mean, there's like a major paved highway that goes through Elfin Forest. I will tell you, yes, it's very creepy. You drive through there at night, it seems like the trees are hanging over the road. It's very quiet. Like they say, you don't get cell phone reception, or you didn't back when I went through there several times. And you do feel like you can just see something jump out in front of you on the road. I've had tales of people that I knew pretty well, so secondhand tales, of people saying that they were driving along the road at night, they heard a th thump, like they ran over something, but there was nothing, nothing jumped in front of them or anything else, and nothing in the rearview mirror. And I asked both of the people who claimed this, I said, you know, did you stop to check? And they said, you think I'm crazy? No way. I just kept driving. So it is interesting. Maybe it's tricks that their mind was playing on them. I don't know. Now, as for my own encounters, when we were on strike in the supermarket, we were on night picket duty. And I mean, this is a long time ago, so hopefully <laughs> I don't get anyone in trouble. But we were on night picket duty. And so what that meant was we were picketing in front of the store at night. I was a steward, like an assistant steward for the store. So I got to be in charge of the night team. And we got bored after a while because we're just sitting out there in camp chairs and that and just basically picketing, trying to stop the trucks. Well, not really stop them, but, you know, trying to show a presence for the workers and that. And as the strike dragged on and on and it ended up going over five months, as time went on and on, we started getting bored and we would do things like around midnight or one o'clock. The guys would say and the girls, hey, let's go out. Let's go out and check out Elfin Grove. Let's go out to Quest Haven. And we'd get everybody to pile into a couple of cars. And like I say, you know, we, we had people drinking. We had people doing other things, uh, mainly smoking, smoking weed. Pile into these cars and drive out to Quest Haven or out to Elfin, Elfin Forest. Now, we went out there three or four nights in a row one time, I do remember. And it, like I say, very spooky, very creepy kind of ambiance. And the effects of alcohol and marijuana probably added to the paranoia. But I know that we drove out there, and there was an area that at the time, because I, I didn't know this backstory that I just read, obviously, there was an area that I thought was a cemetery or a graveyard, but it must have been the remains of this area that they're talking about that's kind of torn down, because there was like a night light and that, and there was, you know, the story that the people were telling me was that there was a night watchman at the graveyard and he'd chase you, but I will tell you this. More than once when we were out there, we had unmarked SUVs come up out of nowhere and just basically turn up on the road a few hundred feet away and then follow us and basically chase us out of there. Now, it could have been like a local private security. It wasn't the police because the police, even in unmarked vehicles, probably would have pulled us over and said, what the hell are you doing? But yeah, we had more than once where the cars split up because of people freaking out. I didn't see any ghosts or anything. I will tell you that the, again, when talking about the empath side of things, I definitely felt a bit of lingering fear or um, palpable tension in the air. Now, again, was that me picking up on the, these other people? 
that were out there with me? Was it me picking that up? Or was it there was actually something there? Uh, again, there were areas I, I, I'd have to sit down and go through a route, like look at a map and go through a route. But there, one of the freaky things to me was that there were these areas and it was like communities of homes built, but no one living there. Like you had street signs there, but there was no one living in these houses, uh, no shops or anything like that. But you had streets laid out and everything else. And yeah, so and, and I know a bit more about construction now and how you plan and build these centers because, uh, I mean, I've been involved in it. But the thing that always was kind of strange to me was there was no security. They didn't have these streets kind of like locked off or barred off. You would think that there would be like a main drag that you could go through to go wherever you were going if you lived up the road. But you wouldn't think that these streets would be accessible. You would think that they would block them off at night because that's what they've done in every kind of uh, site, uh, development site that I've been around. So, yeah, it was a very creepy atmosphere, I'll tell you that. And again, some of these stories that I've heard from different people of seeing things like seeing this white witch out there. Again, are they urban legends? Were they paranoia? I don't know. I just know what I experienced. And definitely a creepy place but again similar to some of the places i spoke about especially in pennsylvania i can see why the locals would get so aggravated by people going legend tripping and turning up out here to see things especially at night and especially on weekends especially people getting drunk and throwing bottles and that out of the vehicles yeah i can fully understand why the locals just want to be left alone now the other sad bit and it does seem to crop up time and time again is this Quest Haven Retreat Center. I mean, people are going out there to basically try and get away from the world, try and do whatever they need to do for personal recovery, and they got people out there turning up saying it's a cult house and everything else. Now, I don't know where those stories originated from or how much truth there is to them, but it is very interesting, I think, that it does seem to be the norm. Anything like this that's kind of quiet and secluded it ends up being a cult house or demon worshipping or something else. So yeah, that is the story of Elfin Forest and the surrounding area. So Elfin Forest, Harmony Grove, Quest Haven, and a very good friend of mine grew up in that area. And I'll see if I can get any further stories. I know he told me the same things that I've already related here that is very spooky, especially after dark, very kind of weird noises and things, strange going ons. But the, the, the number one thing is the same thing I've described, which is just that kind of feeling, that ominous feeling that you get. And being an empath, I, I, I've learned in life that I do trust to that feeling, and I do put stock in it. So folks, that is our Halloween Spooktacular for this year. I hope that you have enjoyed it. And don't forget, we're going to have another special out. In fact, as soon as this is done, and I've got it up, I'm going to be recording another one with uh, our chapter president from North Carolina, specifically to do with haunted real estate and what happens if you have a haunted house and you want to sell it or if you're going to buy a house and it's haunted. It should be really interesting, and I hope that you enjoy it. As for the regular Wednesday episode, I don't know if I'll have it this week. We might push it out just because, yeah, it's basically I'm doing three shows in four days, something like that, and all these long, long format shows. So take care, my friends, and have a safe, happy, safe Halloween, and I'll talk to you very soon. All the best.